When I think of times in my life that I've felt really confident, when I had unwavering confidence, there's one specific time, it was quite a while ago, that really stands out in my mind. I had no doubt in my mind that I was gonna win. All right, well, thank you. I'm with Matthew Bain here. I'm excited. Um, we were just talking before we started recording here, and he's probably the first one that really got me interested in, especially sports psychology. And that was from a few years back when my daughter, Tia, was playing for Alberta basketball, and he was working with the organization as their sports psychologist. And it was really the first time that I really saw this in action. And it's been it was a cool opportunity to see that. And then when I moved to Arizona, we actually had him get on, I guess it wasn't Zoom back then or Skype, whatever we were on and yeah. had him talk, talk to my basketball team down here. And he's just done a lot of the things that I love learning about. I love talking about and I love following him. And so I'm, it's a pleasure to have you with us and please just give us some more information and some of your background. Right on. Well, it's, it's awesome to join you. It's awesome to join you. Um, I, I love the story and the segue of the story because my opportunity to work with, uh, well, in particular Tia, but also, you know, the other athletes was always to get to know them, right? And, and there can be some real hesitancy with, uh, with the term psychology as it's always sort of comes with a problem. And, you know, the way that I've always viewed it, even growing up, uh, started to view in the field, started to dive into the field was that it's always about performance, whether we're dealing with, you know, the clinical challenges, it's just a person who doesn't see themselves as performing or the highest performing athlete that just wants to refine something at the highest levels. And that's really how I've developed the mindset of my practice. And so being a, you know, clinical and counseling psychologist and, and in Canada, sort of mental performance consultant, sort of the term for sports psychologist and, always wanting to pursue more and more knowledge, always wanting to pursue more and more. And so I'm uh, currently doing my PhD uh, with the University of Queensland, looking at personality, motivation, and, and high-performance athletes, uh, but always, always, always humbled to get to know the athletes, to get to know the clients, to get to know the people who seek your, your counsel to you know, to, to pick your brain, to share their world, to share their stories. And we can know a ton about a field, but we don't know anything about people, right? We think we do by observing them, but when we really get to know them, that's the part that, that I love, right? That's the humility because you, you don't know, right? And you get to know the story. And as the story unfolds, that's where you get to layer, you know, what we know and, and try it on with them and see, you know, what it is that's going to work for them. What isn't going to work for them, right? And, and that's the part about this field that I really enjoy. So that's what I'm really excited to be able to talk about today is just, you know, what does that success as a person look like? What does that success, that performance mindset look like for a person? Um, and how can they keep constructing it over time rather than feel like, okay, I've got it locked in, I'm done, right? I just don't think that's a thing. I think we always grow, so. Right. Well, and well, let's start with that, you know, athletics to me is just a reflection of life you know mm -hmm. i i focus a lot with entrepreneurs but it's usually 
when I'm giving them examples and stories to help them with something, it usually ends up being a basketball example or something like that. And <laughs> so it, it doesn't, it doesn't always come down to talent because, mm-hmm. you know, you can have all the talent in the world and still not reach your peak. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I try to focus a lot on is how do you take a high achiever and really get them to their peak performance? And so what are your thoughts on that? Because there's so much of a mental aspect to all of that. What are your thoughts and how do you do that? Well, I think one of the first things is to define high achiever. Is the high achiever, is it a person or is high achiever the achievements? And when we sort of, you know, not to, not to, separate it from the person or the success that the person's had, but the person has always interacted and scaffold, you know, over time to higher and higher expectations or higher and higher achievements. And if they're really a high achiever, then at their very foundation, they have curiosity. And if they have curiosity, then it was probably built on a foundation of playfulness. And if that, 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 that high achievement, they want something from it. If we, take ourselves a little bit too seriously, we tend to kind of lean in and away from what we, what, what would scare us, what would be, you know, almost that, that, oh, I don't know if if I do this and I'm not successful, then others might look, you know, poorly on me, or I'll look poorly on myself and I'll pay attention to some inner narrative. So when we separate those two things, you really get to see curiosity and playfulness for something, achievement curiosity, playfulness for something, achievement, that, that striving for those things to be met are purely intrinsic. I use the story of a child at a park and they're cautious as they get to know the park and get to know the space. And then they'll take more and more risks and inevitably they'll be going a little bit too fast and something will happen. They'll tumble or they'll stumble or they'll slide and fly off a slide or whatever. But at the end of it, they're just like, oh, and they're almost like 80% scared of how they felt and 20% hurt, <laughs> right? And then they'll dive right back in. They were like, okay, whew. And so as adults, if we looked at that, like, holy cow, that perceived failure was, wow, like it didn't have any hurt to it. it didn't have that hurt. So I just had this emotional response to it. Well, that's tempered by curiosity and playfulness. What am I capable of then? Boom. I can just back to this line of what are my expectations? What are my standards? What are my achievements? And we're constantly cycling through something like that, right? And it's oversimplification, but certainly something that, that I think is at the foundation of all of us that we often ignore. Right. So when, when we're looking at situations like this, what are your thoughts between having a a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. Because when I reflect back on, I mean, looking at coach and Tia coming up through her younger years without knowing any better, I was instilling a fixed mindset into her. And just what are your thoughts around, around that? And maybe what, what it is. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the fixed mindset, you know, by definition is, is someone's, you know, fearful to be found out that they're an imposter, right? That they feel their abilities are, are locked in. And if anybody else shows them up, then, you know, the only thing, the only conclusion that they can come to is that they're no good, 
right? And, and I can be no good at something, but it's when I'm deciding and shifting to if I lose or if I'm unsuccessful, then the I, that I am part, that's the part that feeds the fixed mindset, right? It becomes a personal thing. Whereas the growth mindset is, like I said, about that achievement, right? I put the efforts in via that curiosity and the playfulness, and I'm not afraid of what I might achieve because it's unmoored from, you know, for lack of a better term, unmoored from the ego, right? If we can do that, then we're no longer fixated on outcomes or the meanings of outcomes. And, and early on, like sport, unfortunately, I think sport really does layer a focus on important outcomes, right? So the winners, those are the successful people. Nobody pays attention to the, to the team that got fifth. Or, but sport in general often doesn't have the best athletes. It has the best athletes that made it through that grinder. Right at 14 or 15, the attrition of an athlete is, is huge, especially female athletes, who that's not the motivator for a lot of them. And so then we get these, these tremendously uh, talented, able, capable, almost growth mindset, the garden of a growth mindset prepared to grow. And then it gets slammed down by an institution that says the outcomes are the most important or fixed, right? So then it's the responsibility of, of the coaches, of the adults, of you know, those involved, the administrators, to foster a culture of growth, right? The meaning of the 60th minute or the 40th minute, you know, it's not to it, it's through it. And that to me is that growth mindset. I don't go to the competition, I go through the competition. Because I've got something bigger, I've got more to, to achieve, I've got more to strive for, right? And I'm curious, what else am I capable of? Not just the, this game meant this. It's like, well, yeah, it was meaningful, but that means that I've got more meaning to strive for, more to seek, more to take on and internalize. And that's where I think athletics is just this, this back and forth when it comes to that mindset. Uh, schools do it too, right? Without even knowing it, often schools do it. Right. So, so here's your marks. Well, uh, it's like well, this person puts in like 100% effort gets 72, right? And this person puts in 50% effort gets 96. Well, we reward the 50% effort 96 person who's just trying to figure out how little work they can do, but still get all the accolades that come with it. Right. Right. But we don't acknowledge the grinder who's, you know, hammering along, getting 72s and crushing it. And, and crushing the efforts because we don't acknowledge 72 as high achievement, right? Yeah. Often where I think you said, like you project into the, into the professional realms and often the best players are not the best coaches. And for that very reason, right? They're not the best coaches. They don't project into the best coaching roles because still often they're still playing. <laughs> they right. still have something to protect as a player. <laughs> yeah. You know, whereas the seventh person on the bench is like, I'm going to be the best coach in history. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you. Um, now, I'm interested too, as you work with athletes and teams, I'd like to know from both aspects when you're working with an individual athlete. 
and when you're working with a team environment, how do you help them create confidence, create the belief in themselves that they can, you know, perform at their peak? Mm -hmm. So take, I I liked your words, your words of excellence, like how do you cultivate confidence, whether it's individual or collective confidence? And the, we, we tend to sort of reverse the two. Like if I'm confident, then I'll play well or perform well, then that means competence. And if I'm competent, then I'll be more confident. Both of those are built on that self-belief that you were talking about. And if it's built on a foundation of self-belief, whether that's individual, excuse me, or team, is that team institution built on um, the foundations, the functions, the, the criteria, the qualities, the characteristics, the philosophies, all those words that we throw at that. And where a lot of organizations, uh, whether teams, coaches will throw those words and we'll say, you know, commitment and integrity and dedication, and then we'll forget them in a 15 minute warm up, or we'll forget them in, uh, you know, the first five minutes of a competition. We won't mention them until they're not being done, right? Athletes are showing up five minutes late for practice. People aren't showing up and and finishing their project work. And then we're just bringing it up. We need to be more dedicated. But it's quiet when we feel like it's being met. But it's not grown. How does dedication grow? Well, the same way it shrinks, right? If we bring it up as criteria for an individual, What does determination look like? What does dedication look like for you, for this team? That's how goal setting is established so that higher levels of confidence occur, which means lower levels of worry. Well, if that's the case, then we know we're going to be better. And that's where higher levels of competence come from. So it's it's taking those words that that we often use in business or, or in sport and organizations and we put them out in front of ourselves, but then we forget to use them in the same sort of dedicated goal-oriented way that that we do with stats or criteria, right? We've got these sales projections, we've got these point totals, right? We've got to get, you know, we got to be 10 and one because the past 10 years we've averaged 10 and one, right? We had a rough year and three years ago at it's you know eight and three, right? <clears throat> okay. Well, how are we going to do that? Well we better be 10 and one. Well, so how are we going to do that? Well, we got to work hard. Well, that's obvious. Like I've never heard anybody say, well, 10 and 1, we're going to slide right through to that. <laughs> right? But we're going to be dedicated. Okay. What does that look like in warm-up? What does that look like in preparation? What does that look like in attention in meetings? What does that look like in leadership meetings? What does that look like in... And now we're just rooting behaviors in the philosophy or in the quality. And I think that's what's, you just keep bringing those kinds of things up. And then uh, the person stops saying them, you know, intellectualizing them, and then they start to internalize them. They believe they are a dedicated person, right? That's where self-belief starts to really flourish is they start to believe they are not when they play or when they do this, that's when I am. Mm, It's you, not it, right? spinning that and growing that from a perspective of the person or the team, you know, it's, it's huge. Absolutely huge. 
Now what, um, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's a matter of just putting the right habits in place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and a lot of times Jeff Olson, um, I like his quote is they're the easy things to do, but they're also the easy things not to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're looking at someone who's really going after a goal, they've got some big aspirations and stuff. What are some of the, let's call them success habits that you suggest people do on a regular basis that'll help them stay focused, stay confident and be able to be in the right mindset to go after their goals? I think the success habits I think are lined up when, if you go top down, like we were just talking about around something like determination, people want something like that. If they want to be known as that, or they want to be identified as that, then then we use the definition to go, man, that'd be nice. Right. And then we watch a bunch of YouTube videos or something that, that really resonate for us. And we get inspired and we get these kind of fires that sort of burn and then flare out and burn, flare out and burn, flare out. When someone has a success habit, they want to pay attention to not the burn part of that, but the flare out part. What causes them to lose the flame? Right? Is it is it something like daily practice, daily habits? Right? If I'm downstairs and I'm and I'm listening to music and I'm pumped up and I'm working out and I got these, you know, lofty goals of, of, uh, you know, physical performance. And then it fades later on when I'm standing in the kitchen, right? Then it's not the working out part. I've lost something in between those two places. I've got in the kitchen and I go, you know, I'm tired. I don't really want to do. It's that part right there. I'm tired. How do I explain that situation to myself? I can change that self-talk. I can tease that out of there. Am I really that? Right? Am I really tired? Okay. Or, or, and then I just sneak that little or in there. And if I can challenge that little thought, that's that doesn't require you know a psychologist standing there with them. That just requires them to be more insightful for when the flame has started to fade. So the success habit starts with how they explain a situation to themselves, right? Because it can't always be a burning inferno. <laughs> it's not going to be. <laughs> and so I don't have any problem being inspired when the burning inferno is going. But how did it get way down here when it's just a little flame? Right? I probably explained it to myself somehow. And that's the personality part. That's the, that's the motivation part that I love working with. Right? That distresses somebody just briefly where they go to an old habit. They go to that old go-to, right? And instead, they just change that little subtle story that they tell themselves with the or statement. And they go, huh, what's another story? Just so there's a choice. And once there's a choice, now you've, in, you've empowered probably the foundation of all motivation, which is autonomy. Once you have a choice, you feel volitional in the moment instead of, you know, basically a prisoner to some of the old habits, And now I'm starting my own fire rather than waiting for something to start my fire. And that to me is really at the foundation of a lot of that successful habit form or habit forming from behavior to competence, to confidence, to self-belief, what I'm doing, 
why I'm no good at it. Wait a minute. No, I am good at this, right? I can be successful because there's that little or, right? Just sneak it in there to change that dialogue or change that narrative. You change your behavior. That's awesome. So what about when, when someone's preparing to perform? Mm-hmm. What, are the, what are the best things they need to do to get in whatever we want to call it, the zone, flow, whatever it is? How does someone get there? I think there's, I think there's a couple different ways, right? You know, <clears throat> um, I like to tell a story about uh, I had a, a client years ago who was so well-versed in the self-help field books and they've read tons of books and, you know, they were so excited to come in and, and they've embraced, you know, coming in and talking about how to become a better performer in their world and, you know, a better performer in their work and a better performer in their marriage and a better performer in their life and a better performer. And, you know, no matter what I would talk about, they go, oh, so-and-so says this, oh, so-and-so says this, oh, so-and-so says this. And so I, I said, oh, okay, that's great. So we, we wrote them all down. And, and just like, what's resonating for you? And I said, okay, so this, these books here, these ones here are coming from um, a psychodynamic perspective. These ones are coming from a solution-focused perspective. These ones are coming from a humanistic perspective. These are all different philosophical ideologies, which is one of the reasons why you're running into walls all over the place. And so while it's great information, we couldn't connect the dots. For anybody in performance, if I try to take myself out of that performance and do something I don't practice, I'm not going to perform well, right? I always said there's no game day players. There's just underprepared practice players. And so if I'm an underprepared practice player, I've been gathering a bunch of stuff in the hopes that it'll all work for me. Instead of going, what is really resonating for me? What's me? Right? You've got, you know, mindfulness talk and conversations, just letting those thoughts flow. You've got mental toughness and, and grit. And you've got like, you know, stand in and withstand the winds. Well, they've got the mindfulness person and then the, the mental toughness person. And you know, those two people are different believers in what's required at a moment of adversity. But if I'm the same person that's read both, I haven't tried either really well yet. So as a performer, I go, what's going to work really well for me? And that little guided practice can be like, okay, when moments of adversity, do you grit your teeth? Do you tend to tense up? Do you spin? Do you roll with the resistance? Are you kind of, or if I, you know, do I take a mindfulness approach and do a, I just let the thoughts come and go and move through my presence and stay in the moment as best I can and then pay more and more attention to my, to my emotions and how I'm regulating them. My mental toughness person may actually be more focused on self-talk directed to the adversity and then using the emotion as a source of energy in the moment in order to respond appropriately. Right. Whereas this other person is just letting that emotion flow through and trying to stay as present as they can in the situation. But if I read, you know, multiple sources of information, I jam those two things together. I may be fighting myself when it comes to perform. 
So if I'm going to arrive at peak performance, I want to try to get information, but then just like anything, having someone coach me to simplify things, what needs to be done, having someone to bounce ideas off of, but being confident in what I've prepared to do, that's where that landing space is, becomes the launching point for the performer, right? I want to launch from that space that I know I'm confident from in order to demonstrate the highest level of competence. Well, then I would have had to have practiced those things, tried them on, tried them differently, rather than just lean away from those opportunities in, in training, right? It goes back to that curiosity and playfulness. Imagine if we would always be able to maintain that playfulness that we have inside of us ingrained, right? As a result, we go, huh, it's a super stressful moment. Is it though? Or is it just me interpreting it that way as some version of a threat? Like, all right, let's go. Game on. Right. And all of a sudden, boom, I'm there. Right. <laughs> but I've got to question that in the moment to just be me as the performer, not something different. Right? That's sort of how I sell it. Wow. And I, I love that because, yeah, that's something I haven't put as much thought into. But I look at that, you know, I read something by Tim Grover and then I go read The Mindful Athlete. And yeah, there's there's things you can say, okay, I see crossover and stuff, but mm -hmm. they're different. And yeah, I can see how that can conflict with yourself. That's, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. One of the things that I think, especially young athletes struggle with a lot, and especially if they're, I think the more of a star athlete they are, the more this is a struggle. And I, I, I say young athletes, but I think it can happen at all levels. How do you deal with things when, let's talk failure and yep. short-term, long-term, you know, we, you've got all the cliche, you know, fail fast, fail forward, all these things, which is easy to talk about until you fail. And then you realize, no, failing sucks. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's obviously things we learn from failure, but what about in the heat of a game, a big game, something as small as your shots off, you mm -hmm. know, for, I mean, with Tia, I used to have her right next on her toe of her shoe, because if I saw her hanging her head, she was going to see next and be like, you know what? I can't do anything about that. We move on. But how do you deal with that with whether it's athletes or anyone dealing with that and moving on? Mm-hmm. Um, I think to even take failure uh, as, a, as an outcome, because failure is really an outcome. So what preceded failure was actually the person's perceived ability. And their perceived abilities when um, the accuracy of their perceived ability is going to tell you about how close they're going to get to the, the, the edge of their own performance, right? How well they can really do. And so perceived ability, if I'm out on the court or out on the pitch or out on the field, and I'm trying to control for others to know how good or not good I am, then I'm really not as present as I could be. Then I'm just trying to reduce the likelihood of failure to occur. And now I'm not the athlete that I can be. 
where if I take that outcome, that failure, and I go perceived ability is how close and how realistic is it? And not from an outcome perspective, a time, uh, yardage, uh, you know, points scored, all those kinds of things, but a sense of self or what I'd say as athletic identity, right? How closely am I tied to the meaning of my ability to perform? Like this is super important. Okay, you're super important or it is. If I can separate those two, then I want to say, I'm going to take that super seriously because I love it, but I'm going to take myself lightly because I really respect myself. And I'm going to get as close as I can to reduce the perceived part out of that and just look at my own abilities. And that's what I call the ability capability gap. All of a sudden it shrinks, right? If I'm mitigating failure, then failure, it could be this, right? I didn't perform I, you know, as well as I could, so I immediately failed, right? Versus like ability. I could be yo-yoing in between those two things for the entire game, entire practice. I hope I am. Then confidence does that and bumps up ability. Well, what does that do to the capability line? Bump, 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 bump. And it just keeps going up. So as the athlete really unpacks their perception of ability, and what it looks like for themselves in competition, whether that's through self-talk, imagery, film, coach feedback, they're less threatened by any of it. And they're more organic and more honest to themselves. Then as failure happens, it hurts, right? A loss hurts, but that's not failure, right? It just hurts because it's important, right? I didn't perform as well as I'd like to have. We won. It still hurts, right? But I'm looking now at the emotional response, not the cognitive response to perceived failure. Was it my abilities? Yes, no. If it was, then I can improve, right? If it wasn't, what can I improve? And now there's my growth mindset. My efforts go right back into work. I didn't go to the competition. I went through the competition. And am I going to acknowledge that emotional response? Yeah, if anything's important, if we're doing anything important, then the possibility of failure exists. But I don't look at that as the only thing. I go right through it. I need that first part to be better for my goal setting. That's great. I love that. Now, you, you've mentioned it a couple of times and the importance of self-talk. Mm -hmm. What are, I mean, I, self-talk can be detrimental. It's, you know, in my mind, the number one thing is recognizing that you do it. So when it's going the wrong way, you can interrupt that. But what are your, what do you advise on self-talk and how do you put the best practices in place? I think for... When you're looking at self-talk, number one is that there's a huge degree of how much or how little noise somebody creates for themselves, right? There are a lot of people that don't have a ton of inner narrative, and there are a lot of people that have a ton of inner narrative. And so sometimes when someone's, you know, I'm working on, you got to have positive self-talk, and then you've got that, that person in the room's like, I don't do a lot of that, right? 
And when I do, I'm not really aware of it. So it's an increase in awareness for that person. They may actually be able to create quite a nice script for themselves because they haven't had a lot of self negative or self talk, negative or positive. Right. But I've got my quote unquote overthinker over here who's trying desperately to control something, which is just one more thing they got to put in there. That's just more noise that stresses them out. <laughs> so when we're talking about self-talk, we're not going to control the idea that I can, that I'm going to get rid of negative narrative um, because negative narrative, I mean, for the most part, we're still alive because we have a predisposition to be safe right? You know, that rose-colored, you know, glasses optimist cave person who strolled out and believed that the saber-toothed tiger was a nice kitty isn't around anymore. They're gone, right? Like, they're just, you know, I just got to get them behind the ears. No, you're done, right? So that other person who's like, I don't think that's a good idea. We shouldn't go that way. And that other person's like, oh, scare the heck out of me. I'm not going that way. They go the other way. They're still alive. So we're, <laughs> we're predisposed to some some negative self-talk that kept us that kept us safe, right? So it's okay that we have that, you know, we're in a sense, but if it's detrimental to ourselves, now we need to go, wait a minute, is this keeping me safe or is this the thing that's actually in my way? And I'd have to become a little bit more aware of how am I speaking? The weather sucks, you know, to, to an athlete. And someone just noticing the weather sucks. And the other athlete is like, I never play very good in the weather. And then the third one, I always suck when the weather's like this. Well, all three have noticed the weather sucks. One person's just noticed that the weather sucks. <laughs> and nothing has changed in them. <laughs> you know, kind of like, I feel like Tom Brady's a bit like that. Right? It's just like, yeah, the weather sucks. <clears throat> Moving on. Right? Like, and then you got the people who are just like, I suck when weather's like this. Like, okay. So you're already setting yourself up for the first time you suck to confirm that you're right about yourself, right? That confirmation bias. You could have had three or four different things happen for you that didn't suck, but you didn't notice, right? I'm going to be right about how I explain things to myself. And so if I can't change that explanation, I'll just keep getting the same thing. When I can start to challenge the explanation, there's that this seriously self-lightly, like I sucked. Ah, oh, that's not good. I don't suck. This sucks. I got to work harder. What challenges can I, you know, do I face? You know, what do I need to do differently? How do I need to think differently? What is that, you know, all of a sudden I get a different narrative. And that to me is that always, well, not always, but a lot of times feeds imagery because a picture's worth a thousand words. And so I don't need to go through a thousand word self-talk script when I can just strengthen the image, right? And if I can strengthen that image, I, it's not going to change the image if I don't change the talk, right? Someone says, you just got to imagine everybody doing, you know, uh, the, the public speaking statement. So just imagine everybody naked. That I can't imagine. Like if you imagine everybody naked, the number of people that have such a variance for sexuality in the world, that's the worst thing you could say to people. <laughs> I don't think that's a good statement at all. <laughs> you feel vulnerable so everybody else doesn't have any clothes on. 
Oh boy, now I'm even <laughs> more uncomfortable, right? Because if even one person showed up with no clothes on, you'd be like, why doesn't that person have clothes on? Now I can't even think. So we we, we want to change, we want to change our own images. <laughs> we want to use our own self-talk related to us and how we express it. So we need that narrative to be ours and authentic. Right. I hope you're okay with it. I'm going to be using that saber-toothed tiger example. I love that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, so I want to just continue from what you were just saying, though. You know that self-talk and then the imagery with it. Mm -hmm. Talk about the power of visualization and how to use that properly. I I take the the mind's eye um, as instead of trying to create or cultivate something from another place, you take what you get from, from, from the environments, right? There are people um, off the top of my head, I can't remember necessarily the term for it, but there are people that cannot image something, right? And, and it's just not, and it's just not a part of their mind that they've developed or fostered. And as a result may actually experience quite amount of, quite a good amount of frustration from it. They have good auditory, they have good um, verbal skills, they're bright, they just don't get a mental picture. And so it might take too much work for them to dive into it. But when we're talking about visualization, expanding it to include all the senses means that we're using some of the most powerful ones like smell, right? If we have visual, we get 80% of our information from visual cues, but we also pay attention to a ton of uh, a distraction within an environment and then count on our brains to get rid of irrelevant stuff. Well, I mean, let's face it. Like, <laughs> I mean, we'll just, right. So that's the wonderful thing about video games. I mean, looking at, at eye tracking research on, on kids with ADHD versus kids that don't have ADHD uh, a lot of the children who have ADHD won't track the right object in the video game. And, and it's enough that they actually get quite frustrated sooner, become dysregulated, and then struggle because they're not successful the same way another would. But the two kids don't know that, right? Because it's happening in, in hundreds and thousands of a second. Okay? So if I know how I visualize something, how I visualize success, like you said, to the one person who says, you got to imagine everybody, you know, uh, you know, on the field as, as you know, your, your enemy, you got to visualize your enemy. And, you know, one person charges out the door with this like adversarial, all go, no quit, you know, crush everyone attitude. And the other person's just, but I don't, I don't hate any of them. I really like them. They're nice people. I don't think that's going to work for me at all. So you have two totally opposite images and both are, both would be right. Right. So how does this person develop their imagery and how does this person develop their imagery or, or visualization is really important, right? As younger athletes, like younger 12, 13, 14, 15, they're really just starting to cultivate the idea that they imagine something happening. They're doing it already, right? Every one of them has an imagination. Right, every one of them. And then in adolescence, it just fades and everything's boring, right? No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> we stop using it, right? And then we get this place to bring it back. Well, it's there. 
You know, you use your imagination all the time. So it's, it's about cultivating the imagination and then being able to gain control and clarity for it. Can I hold that for 10, 15, 20 seconds, right? How clear is it? And I use a couple of different activities with it. I have a magazine, um, you know, a magazine activity. Someone could be trained in visualization, you know, from, you know, Edmonton to Toronto and just having a magazine and looking at it for 30 seconds, closing their eyes and see how many things they can recall. And then opening for 30, closing their, their uh, eyes again and seeing how many they can recall. By the end, have they, have they cultivated a really clear image of the magazine cover? How much detail is there, right? You've just strengthened visualization, right? Too often we're preparing and preparing and preparing instead of really seeing ourselves in the moment being successful. Right? And that to me is really, I mean, it's deliberate visualization and it's, it's very effective. Right. It's very effective. I mean, think how hard it is to take a little kid out of play mode. Right. You know, when they're a dinosaur, it's like dinner time. Like mm-mm, that dinosaur is coming to the dinner table. <laughs> right. No way. And that's a Tyrannosaurus Rex hitting hot dogs and stuffs all over the place. You're like, knock it off. Right. So, <laughs> so I mean, we have it. It's just how do we train it? How do we use it? How do we foster it the same way? So, and I, th- I think that's another one of those steps to success. If I can't see myself being successful, I just have this other image of myself not having done it well, then I'll resist the successful image only because it isn't as strong as the other one. Right. Right. That's powerful. I love that. No, thank you. Th- this, this is awesome. I could sit here and learn from you all day. I, I, <laughs> I can, I can tell you all that. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, why don't you share for our listeners how they can learn more from you, how they can stay in touch with you, where they find you, all of that. Yeah. Um, I'm Instagram, sports like uh, underscore Matt. Uh, Twitter's the same handle. Um, my webpage um, is uh, mmbcounseling.com. Uh, I have, uh, I've, I've started to put some really neat sort of organic conversations with coaches and strength coaches and, you know, young professionals on YouTube. And they're just like conversations, you know, we're just throwing them up on YouTube and having people talk about what's coming up with them. Um, over the next kind of few months, I hope to kind of create some of the scripts that come out of it because the ideas that, that, um, that I learned from, you know, a PhD level strength coach, a university level hockey coach, basketball coach, um, you know, if we're not going to challenge ourselves, you know, I, I would say like, I know athletes, but I don't know that one. And I know sports, but I can't know sports like they do. You know, I can't know professions like they do, but I know people. So ultimately it comes down to being able to kind of reach out and, and hear from people, what their ideas are, what their thoughts are. And if they're interested in, and open to having a quick conversation about things, whether it's text, I'm all for it. And this is my passion at the very, at the very core of my being as humans. So I love it. That's awesome. And I'll, I'll make sure that all those links are in the show notes and stuff. Is the YouTube channel under your name or what's the YouTube channel? Yeah, under? It's under, it's under MMB counseling. 
Okay. I'll make yeah, sure just... to have all those. You know, and it's, you know, just to kind of uh-huh. add to add to what you say there, it, it is so interesting learning from different aspects of it, you know, within the last, well, within yesterday and today, besides yourself, I've been on, I just this morning, I was on with a baseball player. Yesterday, I was on with a tennis player who's helping with uh, Paris 2024 Olympics right now. Um, I was on with a professional rodeo cowboy yesterday and just seeing all the different aspects, but it all comes together and it's all the same thing. And so this is so much value you've added here today. So thank you. I really appreciate that. I think our listeners are going to get a ton out of it. Well, I hope so. And and I've had a lot of fun chatting with you. And you said we probably could, you know, sit in the stands like we did in, uh, you know, <laughs> at the game and just chat. So. Absolutely. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks again, Jim. Appreciate it.